Welcome to the Media Camp Magazine podcast. Thank you for tuning in for the next in our series, Rebel with a Cause, with me, Opal Turner. For this series, we are talking about the relationship between creativity and strategy, or in my other words, art, science and logic. It's my pet theory that strategy and planning can be a creative secret weapon and vice versa, and that we overly separate the disciplines in our industry. Today, I'm super psyched to be talking with Louisa Shirey, an artist turned coach. Louisa has created the Solar System, a coaching method to help autistic folks to their own self-clarity, self-acceptance and self-directed lives. Thank you so much for being here, Louisa. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Opal. It's really an honour and I love the premise of this podcast, so I can't wait to talk to you. So excited because partially I'm very biased because I and my partner, like most creatives, it seems, am neurodivergent. So I just I just can't wait to get into all of this delicious information. So let's start with learning a bit more about you. Can you just kind of top line for us um, a bit about your journey and how you've got to where you are with the solar system now? Yeah, so I've been doing this for three and a half years now after more than a decade of working as an artist in the visual art industry and I think the journey probably begins age 16. I had just had a breakdown in secondary school after years of masking depression, disassociating my way through and I'd asked the school counsellor how to be myself and share that I didn't know how to be myself and she told me that who I was being was in response to in her words, a toxic environment. So just for, for, for you all to know, this is a girls' grammar school in Kent. Um, but yeah, it was a very um, a kind of competitive hotbed of popularity and achievement. And so, yeah, she opened up this possibility that who I was being and how I was feeling wasn't all of who I am and that there were possibilities outside of that and beyond my social environment and that there was more to me. And so, yeah, that really, uh, I think, is the flavour of everything that I'm doing now in terms of imagining beyond the systems that we're in and, um, you know, who else could we be when we're not in reaction to what doesn't work. So, yeah, after that experience, I went on a healing journey. I found Jungian astrology. This was like late nights on my parents' computer, accessing the internet. And learning about shadow work, meditation, movement, and then really going deep into art as a way of just moving through stuff and finding my own voice, understanding what I'm about, who I am. And I ended up moving to London, studied art, um, and started working on advertising shoots to get through uni without having to work late nights in bars. And then after a couple of years after graduating made the leap into the art world started working as an artist leading workshops um, with galleries like Tate Modern Whitechapel and I got a contract at Tate Modern to deliver part of their school visits workshops and it was in one of those workshops that a specialist school an autistic specialist school came it was a group of 13 to 14 year olds and it was in that moment, all the possibilities and ways of being that I'd been trying to articulate in my work, that I'd been trying to create space for in my workshops, was just being embodied by these very well-supported teenagers who 
were being themselves. They weren't all the same. And in that moment, I saw myself in them and them in me. And so, yes, this is more than a decade ago. And that really kickstarted a whole journey of, am I autistic? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my work, my creativity? And I could see a lot of the connections between everything that I was trying to explore, the kind of sublinguistic embodied modes of expression that, that I was working with and what I think is a, a neurodivergent or autistic way of sense making, um, I could really see the links. So that led me into residencies with neuroscientists, autism researchers, got to walk into the liar's mouth and be the subject in question. And yeah, I used that to really um, explore access needs and, and politicizing my presence within these scientific spaces. And yeah, really came out of that with a lot of clarity, finding a lot to embrace, finding a lot that was useful. And then I was making a lot of art, trying to kind of covertly sneak in and not really tell anyone that I'm autistic or that, you know, this is something that I'm trying to work through and realized that that I actually had ideas here and I had insights that could help people and that were helping me um, and that I needed to stop hiding. And so, yeah, that really led into, you know, and also looking at what are my strengths and how can I build a vocation around what is really going to work for me long term. And so, yeah, let, that's led me to coaching other people through their own journey of who am I when I'm not <laughs> over-adapting and being in reaction and trying to fit in. Yeah. And so do you think there was any kind of specific milestones that popped up in your creative career that really led you to coach? I mean, it, sound, it sounds like to me, you you wanted to coach because you wanted to be what you didn't have and, and, and kind of wish you had. But was there any other kind of like milestone moments or experiences that you had along the way that went, no, I've definitely got to do this? Yeah, I think I was working a lot with performance as a medium to try and get to the sense of directness that I really like and the, the kind of direct feedback loop of a live audience. And so I think, un, you know, realizing that, that that direct communication was something that I was seeking and that having an exhibition, inviting people to it just didn't give me that. That was a, a big part of it. Another was my own journey of trying to figure out my own path and you know googling youtubing trying to find the answers trying to work out is it just the right schedule or how do I need to <laughs> how do I do this um you know a lot of the given work routes didn't really work for me things like networking at private views and stuff like that so I sought out coaches and had experiences with coaches and in their programs where all of those internal um, boundaries of or, or barriers that I'd learnt around who I could and couldn't be and all of the masks and all of the, the reasons that I'd built up for why I didn't get to be myself or I didn't get to live the life I wanted or um, really got unravelled. And so, yeah, it was both the experience of, you know, uh, my own ex being coached um, loving the the direct feedback that 
I started to do when I started hosting workshops and um, sharing my ideas. And so, yeah, in the beginning of the solar system, I wasn't calling it coaching. I wasn't seeing myself as a coach. It was kind of like, ew, coach, that's like a bit embarrassing. <laughs> There's a lot of um, social currency that comes with being an artist. There's a lot of freedom. And so, yeah, it was never an intentional move into a specific industry or out of one. It was more that this this started to feel really good and it started to feel right. And this way of re-encoding how we see the world and our, our material experience of it, it, it feels like the same work and it's just in a different medium. I love that. I love that. I, I think that's one of the things that, I've 100% found through every single interview um, with all the people that, lovely people that have come and chatted with me, is that uh, we often feel like, even though the world sees us as multidisciplinary or, you know, working across all of these different things, there's actually just this through line, which is ourselves and our, our heart and us trying to figure out how the hell we cope with who we are in this world. Yes. But um, before we before we go into the methods, let's just dig in a little bit more into so who it is that, that you're that you're working with, and and why they come to you. I mean, have you any kind of observations? You've been doing it for three years now about why or from what background or creative medium even um, the people you work with come from, and and what are the challenges that you often find them dealing with? Yeah, so the people I'm working with are really. It's a really, really wide range of creative uh, vocations and mediums and, and and paths. Some of them, it's they've come to um, yeah. So I work, work I work with autistic folks mostly, late identified mostly people who they love the um, recognition and acknowledgement that that label gives them, but aren't so much into. The pathology paradigm and the the idea that there's something wrong with them doesn't feel so helpful. Um, a lot of them also are have other experiences of marginalisation, are trans or non-binary, or have collected other diagnoses like ADHD and so on. So that's who I'm working with, and it's often people who they've they've maybe done a lot of the research, they've done a lot of the what does this mean, uh, googling and social media yeah <laughs> saving all of the posts and all of that stuff um but they're really then coming to a sense that okay but my life hasn't changed and I know this but the world doesn't hasn't caught up yet and so how do I actually do this how do I live my life um so some of them yeah it's it's very recent after they've what you know self-diagnosed or had an official uh, piece of paper for others it's been a while and they've just been struggling or they've been unfairly dismissed or pushed out of a job or the access needs haven't been met. And for others, it's, um, yeah, and I think for all of them, they know that there's more in them. They know that they're being called to create something that doesn't yet exist in the world, be it, you know, a, a new business or a project or a service or a book or some kind of vision that they have. And they're just really looking for, okay, but how? How do I do this? And how do I do this when uh, I know that it's going to mean me starting to advocate for myself, me starting to be who I am, and how do I actually be who I am? So, yeah, <laughs> that's, who I'm, that's who I'm working with. 
that is the big question. That is the big question. And so on that point, let's let's get into the the, the work that you do with your clients more deeply. How I'm interested because I think it kind of it, it probably goes without saying to a degree because you're autistic yourself that you've 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 made a process that works for people with minds that work in similar ways. However, is there anything that you've kind of very specifically adapted or or the, one of the ways in which you work that you feel is, you know, substantially different to quote unquote neurotypical coaching um, to, to cater to the neurodivergent and autistic folk that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. So coaching is a really new industry. Um, it's like only a few decades old. It's really developing really fast uh, and a majority of life coaching is really uh, mindset focused so it's a lot of focus on what are you thinking and and taking responsibility for how you're responding to your life but I think what is really key for anyone who experiences any kind of marginalization and particularly for those who are processing and perceiving differently and haven't had that acknowledged and affirmed is really creating a space of safety, safety to exist in whoever, in whatever state you are in that moment on that day. And so that that safety is, is it's partly about creating a, um, an environment. So I have a group program. We have weekly coaching calls. In those coaching calls, that safety piece is really key in terms of access needs. So, you know, knowing that 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 is something that is a culture it's not just an add-on but also we do a lot of you know somatic work grounding uh collective rituals so that that sense of inclusion and that sense of safety is felt in the body not just on a piece of paper or on a screen and then the other piece of safety is um acknowledging that the struggles that people have experienced are real and that is such a key beginning piece before we can do mindset work before we can start to take responsibility is just acknowledgement for the struggle and the pain and that really is about looking at the systemic aspects of of it so i think uh and the impact of those systemic uh issues which is trauma so i think a big part of what what I'm doing that is maybe slightly different is really emphasizing and bringing in that your body is to be believed that you are enough and that's such a huge part of it and when we feel that when we are are accessing that safety some of the mindset stuff actually resolves itself and just being able to you know have that as an experience in your body that you are feeling seen that you're feeling acknowledged that then creates the foundation that we can then work on. I think another aspect of it is, so context is a really important aspect of what uh, I think a lot of neurodivergent, autistic, ADHD folks need because we are processing differently, because we um, are perceiving, we're literally physiologically perceiving different a different reality so, so much of our experiences are involving communication differences and people misunderstanding you, people misreading you, misinterpreting you. And so really having a, a clear sense of, you know, am I being understood? Am I being heard? And that directness, but also 
the context for your own journey of self-development. And this is why I love working in a group because um, it's not a support, it's not a support group. It's not like uh, everyone's supporting each other. It's lots and lots of parallel journeys of one-on-one coaching that happens in front of the group. And so there's context building that happens when you're watching someone else get coached on issues that are super relevant that you have maybe shame around and that you're seeing someone experience and you're accepting them in that and that that sort of opens up your own self-acceptance around that same issue fascinating i'd never thought of group sessions in that context ironically yeah (laughs) yeah i mean there's a lot of um you know there's a lot of support support groups and uh you know things that you can go to quite often a lot of them are free but i think having someone that is responsible for holding the space and also knowing that you aren't responsible for anyone else's journey a lot of us have have come to a place where we're people pleasing or we're putting other people's needs first so i get to be in a group and be selfish and I get to experience trust and empathy and uh, safety without having had to, you know, make friends or fit in or fulfill the brief of what some spaces require. Yeah. Fascinating. I think one of the things that that also made me think about is it, it's it's fundamentally kind of creating psychological safety for, for everyone that's there, which you know, it's different things for everyone, but it's interesting how you said um, kind of most coaching focuses on mindset, but as soon as you create psychological safety, a lot of those those issues disappear. And I just suddenly thought how much that could apply to everyone. Yes. Yes. Literally everyone. We're here going, oh, I need to fix how I'm thinking, what I'm doing. And in actual fact, it's just that you're not in a space where yourself is, you feel safe. Yeah. And it's the mammal part of our, our being, right, that is responding and that is perceiving that lack of safety. And sometimes that safety is there, but because we've experienced so much of a lack of safety, we're not trusting it yet. We're not, and our bodies aren't relaxing into that that new experience of safety. Sometimes this experience of safety can actually feel unsafe. Sometimes we come to safety and we and it throws up a lot of what we're bringing of like, what will people think? Or I must be too much or not enough or, um, and that also brings, yeah, with it the, the chance to work on that. But yeah, 100% safety <laughs> would, would resolve so much, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I, I just immediately think about how many workplaces specifically could just make such a ginormous impact to all their employees, which I think it was, you know, I think it's not it's not the newest thing in the world. I think we all knew that, um, but especially within the context of neurodivergency, which is you know wonderfully becoming a more and more important topic in the creative space specifically. Yeah, but it's just fascinating because one of the things that made me start the podcast was these stereotypes of what a creative person looks like and in the UK in the ad industry that's very often neurotypical white male who's very outgoing and funny and so on and so forth Um, and it can be really difficult to to kind of battle with that when that's not who you are and it's it's so ironic because as I said earlier most of 
the creatives that I work with are neurodivergent in one way or another. Like we totally, I don't know what the stats are on this, by the way. So like someone else can fact check that. But I have just, from experience, there is way more of us in the creative department than in any other area of the world that I've been in. Yeah, I mean, there were some statistics I read. I'm going to, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but it's something like uh, in terms of university courses, 7% are neurodivergent on, you know, in general, but when you go to the creative subjects, it's at least 30%. At least. At least. <laughs> if not way more. I'm giving that we started on on uh, female neurodivergency and masking and how much it's affecting yeah. how we diagnose. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's 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 just it's just fascinating and it's so powerful and it's it's so lovely to hear that you're working with the the physical body in that space as well. I think you know there's increasing amounts of research that tells us what we already know that we hold trauma in different ways that uh, women are more likely to have autoimmune diseases because of stress and the way that we. Yeah. inside our bodies and how that affects our epigenetics and so on and so forth and this that's yeah. a, a massive area that's being researched but i love that you're applying that and not and it's and it's it, you know as you said you've worked with neuroscientists you've, you've you've got that scientific backing but you're also just trusting how people feel which you know as you say as marginalized people it's just not something we get that often Yes. And it's also, you know, the, the foundation of safety is, is what means that we can access creativity and the strategic parts of our brain. Just to bring it back into what, you know, what your, your podcast is about is those, those, those skill sets are so much harder to access when we are worried about a job or we think that, that we're going to fail a client. I'm nodding a lot. Things like that. I feel that in my soul. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. And so that's that's actually a great, great segue. But one of the things that um, I obviously immediately went and did because you told me that you do with your clients um, was that you use the Gallup Strengths Finder with all of your clients. Can you just, for, for everyone who has not immediately gone and done that, can you just top line what that is for us and, and, and why it is that, that you found that a really useful tool to use? Yeah, so it's it's one that I introduced later on in the in the process that people go through with me um, when it's much more about okay, how do you now re go back to your life, go back to the world from an you know and, and restructure it in terms of your strengths. And I think uh, the Gallup Strengths Finder, I found it a really useful tool. A lot of my clients have found it a really useful tool for thinking about what their strengths are that are coming from personality. And that isn't coming from a checklist of symptoms or things that they are necessarily rewarded for. Um, but that is, you know, and what I like about it is there's so much data that's gone into it. Millions and millions of people have taken this test and it gives you essentially there's 34 strengths and it just gives you an, uh, uh, the ordering that puts the, that that you reflect, right? So what your strengths are and what order they are in. Um, so it's like a deck of cards. Every card is equally weighted and everyone gets a top 10. And so your top 10 strengths would be the ones that are, when you're living in that, when you are working in your strengths, you're energized. And so I find it really useful because 
Um, a lot of my, a lot of the people I work with are working in their weaknesses or over adapting so much that they don't get to live in their strengths. And so it's just another way into, okay, what are the things that I've been through or what are the things about me that I do bring to the table? And yeah, in a way that isn't about comparison necessarily, but is there are things we've overcome, there's insights that we have, there's ways of figuring things out, there's natural tendencies and just seeing it as like, ah, a list. Oh, cool. Okay. Now I can think about how do I build my work and how do I build a, a vocation or start to emphasize them and then how do I look at the weaknesses? Because there's also obviously the end of the list down towards 34 where there are things where maybe you want to get support or maybe if you're finding that you're, you've ended up in that role, that actually it's giving you affirmation that no, that's not where you're supposed to be. There's, there's other things to focus on. And this is such a like strategic, logic-minded question of me to ask. But do you find um, when people take the the strengths finder, is it ever is it surprising? Is it or is it really just kind of reassuring and validating what people already thought about themselves? I think generally there's a lot of reassuring and validation. Not just me. Right? Yes, <laughs> that was a hundred percent a selfish question. Um, Yes, <laughs> I, I do think that's that's a trait of a lot of us is that we find it hard to hold positive things about ourselves true until we have this kind yes. of scientific, some sort of support that comes from a third party. It's like you're third party verified to know what your personality is. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of my top strengths is futuristic. Another is ideation. And those two were like... I do have ideas about the future. It's me. <laughs> it's not just, you know, dreaming and being, you know, idealistic. It's it's a strength. Yeah, and it it, it can be so tricky to go, am, like, especially when it comes to to idealism or, or positive. You're like going, okay, wait a minute, maybe I just want to think this about myself. Yeah. Because it's the story I'm telling myself about myself. No, actually, you are good at that. Yeah. And that's who you are and that's okay so unsurprisingly to me at least mm -hmm. there's a pattern that you see in strategic thinking being a predominant trait uh it was two for me for the no one that was wondering um do you also notice anything about kind of as you were saying ideation like creative um related traits coming up in these reports or just in your observations of of, of the the clients you're working with yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard to give a balanced view because I just attract creative people and that's who I want to work with. So they're all creative in some way and, and those are definitely the patterns that come up. But I think, you know, there's also possibly the element of when you haven't fit in or when you've struggled with the way things that are laid out in front of you and it doesn't work or you're having experiences in your body or your or your sensory experience that aren't reflected or affirmed from people around you of questioning everything and I think at the heart of creativity is questioning it's like pushing against it's this isn't everything it's being the the flying fish being able to see the water and so I think those two things go hand in hand in terms of what I learned um 
working with the neuroscientists who are really looking at embodiment, but also, uh, yeah, the autism researchers. So Anna Remington at the Centre for Research into Autism and Education has done a lot of work around how a lot around autistic strengths and finding that there is um, extra. We have a, a, a larger capacity for how much experience that we're processing. So this won't come as a surprise to folks, and I and I I suspect there's a, a an element of ADHD which is doing this as well, which is that we're taking in more, we're processing more. There's a lot going on, but I think what that lends us to is a different way of processing and and making sense of that information. So it's not just that we're extrasensory. It's not just that we're hearing the fan and we can't concentrate on the conversation and there's visual stuff happening around us and we're being distracted, it's also that this extra sensory means that we are um, making sense through finding the connections between the emergent patterns around us. And so rather than processing the world in a linear fashion and a, and a piece, a chunk by chunk fashion, we are absorbing this kind of whole thing and then feeling and sensing where are the patterns, where are this, where are the, where are the emergent, uh, yeah, patterns or energy, or where is there some kind of system or structure uh, behind what I'm experiencing? Um, and this means that we like to deep dive, we like to go immersive, we like to go full tilt into uh, a particular subject or three at once, and um, yeah, and I think that. That seeking of connections between and, and that sense of the energy lends itself to creative expression, to working with different mediums to yeah. yeah, totally. And so I'm, you know, going going back to the the neuroscience research that you've been involved in, what what were the key things actually it might just be worth just absolute just very, very, very briefly, if you can, top lining mm. what neuroscientific research of embodiment actually means that actually might be a bit confusing yeah so I spent a year with Manos Tsukiris and his department at the Royal Holloway um, in London and he has something called the the lab which is the lab of action and body and his understanding of embodiment is really what is me and what isn't me and how do we distinguish between the two that would be a different understanding of say the field of trauma where embodiment is much more about I'm connected to me I'm connected to other people I'm connected to my environment but yeah from a from a neuroscience point of view so he was doing a lot of work um actually a range of different work but I zeroed in on certain certain things of yeah how do we know uh what a self is what does it mean to have a self who is the, what is the self um, and how do our senses interact with the world and, and how do we make sense of who we are and who we aren't? I love how inherently philosophical but also scientific that is at the same time. I think I could yeah. have this forever, but I think that's probably at least one whole episode, so I won't go into that in depth now. Uh, <laughs> now that we, we, we're all on the same page about what we're talking about, what yeah. what were the key things that you found need to be unlearned to reach that sense of, of of self? And and how did you come about those learnings or how was that supported by by the research? Yeah, so from neuroscience and from this particular 
researcher in field and and the things that I learned, um, there's a there's one theory which is called, you know, and to, just to go back briefly to the philosophical side, one of the things that I unlearned was this idea that neuroscience is very factual and very fixed, and this is the definitive truth about you know the body and and, and neurons and so on. And actually discovering that it's much more provisional and much more theoretical and we're just trying stuff. And so, you know, one of the one of the leading theories about how we experience reality in ourselves is from something called predictive coding, which is this idea that everything that we're perceiving, we're we're kind of referring back to a working model of what the world is like, what ourself is consists of, what the future will be like. And so what we could say from that is there is no fixed reality. There is no objective, um, you know, fixed, uh, stable reality, but rather that we all have models. We all have uh, working assumptions about what is real, what is true. And so these uh, working assumptions, these, these models of reality come from our body, so our abilities, our body shape, the sensory experience that we have. And what I find useful to think about is how different an understanding of self and world a fox might have from an owl, just because they have a completely different body shape, different senses, the owl could fly. So our, our, our sense of what's real is informed by what we can perceive, what our bodies uh, experience, the nervous system that we have, the nervous systems of our caregivers, and as you mentioned before, the kind of epigenetic, uh, I think it goes back 14 generations of of data that we're that are in us, right? And then we're also informed by our past experiences. So these are not just the memories that we can recall on a cognitive level, but yeah, the the fact that our nervous system is our primary memory storage. I'm drawing on trauma a bit more here, but um so those past experiences will shape the expectations that you have about what you're going to be experiencing or what things mean. We're also socialized into certain meanings and expectations and values and what to focus on and what's important and who we're supposed to be and what it's okay and not okay to do with our bodies. And then also our tools. So we think with and we have agency that's extended or enabled or disabled by the tools that are around us. Uh, and that shapes what our understanding of our, of our world is and who we are. So this, I think, is a really helpful perspective because when we're considering the ways that we may have been labeled or categorized, uh, there is a, an assumption in a lot of um, mainstream and clinical understanding that there is a fixed reality, that there is a, a, a normal human, and, yep, and uh, that, you know, and I think unraveling this idea that there is this fixed reality that it's possible to be objective means that you can start to look at all of knowledge, all of communication as as a theory and as a, a working model of reality and that 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 are not often not compatible. So if you have a different body, if you are literally perceiving different things, you're going to need a different working model to make sense of your experiences than what is available in a lot of the kind of common social communication, which is a lot around shortcutting our models, like, oh, how did you get that job? Or 
you know, what do you think is important or what did you think of this program? But also, you know, um, there are different ways of knowing that aren't uh, necessarily widely distributed or resourced, that we don't have tools for yet, and that don't, um, yeah, that we don't get to, that haven't fully been extended in ways that I think would would enable and create a lot of agency for people who do think differently, who do experience the world differently. In terms of other things to unlearn, I think there's a lot around being wrong, being not enough, and that 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 is um, a common belief, a common, um, a, a deep-seated belief that a lot of the people I work with, I think everyone that I work with, and I think most humans actually, we've we've gathered up these rules for what is okay and not okay to be. And a lot of us have, have experienced that the natural ways that we express ourselves are not quite fitting or not wrong or don't get us what we want or don't um, lead to belonging. And so we kind of construct these false selves and these um, false egos to navigate that. And so, yeah, unlearning that there's a fixed reality, unlearning that there's a correct way to be, and um, unlearning that something like autism is a fact and is a, a you know clinical uh, you know a thing that can be a reliable, objective, unbiased thing. When when actually you know it came out of the Nazi era when psychiatrists were rewarded for finding these categories of difference and yeah, so there's a lot of. There's a lot to unlearn, there's a lot to unpack, and I think, yeah, the understanding that that no one is right and that we don't need to argue to be right and we just need to, okay, what am I thinking about myself and start there. That is so, so, so true. And I, I was just I was just thinking about, you know, there's as as we talk more and more about neurodivergency, I, I, I've seen recently there there's been kind of more pushback on um over over clinicalizing uh, thought patterns and personality and so many people go well, that that's just a personality aspect it's not about neurodivergency so on and so forth and having that context of, of of knowledge firstly of where the medical institutions have have got this information from don't get me started on bmi um yeah. is is huge but also just that understanding that it doesn't it doesn't essentially matter. Yeah. Or it doesn't have to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whether we are right or wrong, we exist, right? Yeah. So And I, I wonder is how how often um have you come up against gender also as as one of those things? Because as you were speaking, I was just thinking how how much those those things must apply to gender and specifically you know um you you mentioned some of your clients are trans non-binary you know how i've also seen some some recent research I, I i don't know how reliable it is again because it's not just it's been researched um, um there is uh, a higher likelihood of within neurodivergent folk of being trans non-binary yeah, that might be related to the way that we we believe or think 
differently and we have different senses of self. I just wonder if that's something that you've you've touched on at all. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think we can theorise and we can look at why. And I think, as you said just now, it's actually the wrong question and, and we exist. And so the question really is, how do we make a world that's um, more embracing and makes us more possible? I think what I do um, introduce in the group is that we need to look at the ideological roots of where all of these, you know, binary systems come from, where this classification comes from. And we can trace it back 2000 years, probably longer, um, and really look at the development of knowledge uh, as a primarily, you know, I'm talking about Western um, knowledge in the global north, a lot of it has its roots in uh, a very white male dominated lineage uh, that goes through imperialism, colonialism, eugenics. And so there's a lot of unlearning that we have to do before we even look at these binaries around the separation of body and mind, the separation of nature and human, um, the idea that the Enlightenment era um, philosophers had that, you know, nature is this domain out there that um, that we can, you know, that, that we govern and that we need to kind of uh, irritate it in order to discover the, the laws of physics. And, you know, you can see how these ideas might have been coming when, uh, you know, and this idea that we're on this linear timeline of progress, that, that there's a there's a hierarchy. You can see that with the backdrop of imperialism and the brutality that was being exported, why those ideas were you know being come up with by those who were yeah literally everything yeah yeah and the you know the binary of ill versus cured yeah um dependent versus independent we're all dependent on each other it's just that some of us have less common dependencies and so the fact that you and i are depending on laptops and computers and Zoom software to make this conversation happen, whereas someone else has a different dependency to, you know, do what they need to do. And yet, because it's under-resourced, because it's different, it carries this stigma. So yeah, there's a lot of unlearning to do. And I think coming back to trusting your own body and your own sense of self and finding spaces where that can be affirmed can be the most transformative incredible it's just it's there's just so there's so much i could have started like five other conversations in the middle of that answer <laughs> not going to i'm going to stick to my questions and <laughs> linear timeline that i'm working yes for this book yep um can you can you give us an example of how you help and advise your clients to do that because that's massive yeah, not, that's no small feat by any means because it's not. It's not even just unlearning one system or or binary idea. Which, by the way, if anyone is interested in exploring the binary further, um, there's a wonderful episode with Isabel Bale who um, just did an incredible, incredible paper on this and has wonderful, great thoughts. And that's in the archive. So please do listen to that if you haven't already. But anyway, yeah, easy. Um, I I wonder how you kind of even how do you even start going about that? What yeah. like how 
do you help them to use, you know, whether it be their strategic thinking skills or what other personality traits they have to actively enrich their lives or their careers or their work or hats? Really good question. Yeah. Um, so part of part of it is um, there's materials, there's resources, there's uh, a course that that all of the people that I work with in the group um, coaching program that I have, they, they get access to that does some of that. Um, so there's there's an element of, okay, just, you know, having that intellectual acknowledgement and, and the theoretical acknowledgement. But in terms of a, a, a practical approach that we that I use is it starts with knowing what you want. And then when we start to think about, okay, if I'm really being true with myself about what I want, is when all of the stuff that we've learned that's in our way comes up. And this is like every time that we're trying to create something new or we're trying to become a new version of ourselves or we're trying to just exist more honestly and more truthfully, there's going to be parts of us that have internalized these ideas of what we're supposed to be or I'm supposed to look like this to be professional or I'm supposed to, um, you know, we have all these rules. And so when we when we identify what we want and then we look at all of the reasons why not, so many of those reasons are genuine barriers, but some of them are, um, some of them are real, yeah, real barriers in the world. But some, a lot of it is, what am I making that mean about me? How have I decided that that means I'm less worthy of what I want? And really creating more and more safety to step outside of those rules, to step outside of what the examples that we've had, and. Um, in our bodies to create the safety to do that and then also work on the mindset of you know what's coming up for me in my thoughts about why not one of my coaches said to me you can have reasons or you can have results and that's always stuck with me because whenever there is a reason that I have of why not me or why this isn't possible or I don't get to have this uh, I you know I can look at that as okay I can I can let that be the reason I don't or I can I can decide that that's not going to be a, a reason I let be the reason I don't do it. And yes, it might mean uh, a, a level of courage that I'm not yet stepping into. It might mean doing things where I feel self-conscious or I feel like I'm learning publicly and I'm going to make mistakes. And yeah, so a big part of it is, is courage. So knowing what you want, that throws up what we then work on. Yeah. That's major. Because what yeah. do what do what do we want under all of those layers of of standing? <laughs> wow, that is. I feel like I'm in therapy. I'm like <laughs> on that little emoji where the brain just like explodes. Yeah, fascinating and very related to my next question actually, which is I know one of the things that you come across a lot um, and unsurprising for me is is burnout and, and overwhelm um, and neurodivergent yeah. or not. I think we can all relate to that, especially in the creative industries. Um, for for what, for, is there any kind of specific reasons or, or mindsets that you feel happens to to, to cause that or is there a, there a key thing that you found that can can really help um, to think about or or to work on to, to negate those you know massive 
massive issues which are personally huge but also our entire industry is is having kind of a burnout epidemic so i feel like that's an important thing for us to to chat about yeah so so burnout really is coming from when we push over and beyond our own limits and those limits may be um they may be sensory they may be things like that they may be kind of fixed limits that are just always going to be there but a lot of them are that we've been over adapting we've been thinking i have no choice but to over adapt um that i'm supposed to push past my own limits in order to belong in order to please my caregivers in order to fit in with this industry in order to look like i'm succeeding and so it's really about recognizing that we all have um uh, a, a different state in which our nervous system is in collectively we we're all you know coming to terms with this i think and recognizing that um yeah that we we have what's called a window of tolerance and that pushing ourselves beyond it into disconnects actually doesn't doesn't work for long term and there's a there's a there's a cost right so yeah, burnout is is when we're not honoring those limits. When we start to honor those limits, when we start to recognize that we do have a choice and there are other options and that we are our health is more important than anything else and start to come back into them, start to say no when we mean no instead of yes, um, is when we can start to grow that capacity again. So burnout is your body has something to say and um, I think what a lot of people experience is that, oh, if I, if I listen to it, that means I'm going to have to acknowledge that I just can't do any of this or I'm going to have to um, face what my body is saying Then it's saying that, I, that this isn't working and that I have to stop. And, that, and what we do is we project that into the future and we think that we'll never be able to do it, that we'll never be able to get back up. And so a really big part of... Um, coming out of burnout and healing it is is honoring the no that your body is saying but knowing that it's temporary and knowing that it's only through um through yeah coming into a new relationship with with those signals internally that you can start to expand your capacity for what you can stay with yourself through what you can stay self-connected through without coming into disconnects and disassociating way through life and yeah <laughs> that's, that's that's a really lovely way of putting it in, in the you know as soon as you start to acknowledge what you actually want and and say no to what you don't want that you're actually opening yourself up further you're not because I think that's one of the things we I mean I'm speaking from my personal experience of of, of burnout is I go well I can't do it so I've got to do less yeah and it is less in one sense but at the same time by saying no and 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 pulling back from certain aspects you're actually broadening yourself up to those all those other wonderful things that you actually really do love and you actually really do want it's yeah. not about becoming less it's yeah. just about focusing where you want to be and sometimes we sometimes we don't want to admit to ourselves what we really want or that what the path that we're going down isn't working because 
we know that on some level the path that we do want is going to require us to step up to who we could be and and another level of courage and that's really scary and so yeah like recently i keep thinking about um the sunk cost fallacy that you know we so often keep doing things that don't serve us because we essentially think that we're in too deep and so if we get out now you know we've 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 lost everything that we've that we've worked for as if that hasn't meant something because it didn't end up how we were originally yeah. would yeah um, and I can yeah it's I think that's one of the things that we absolutely have to deal with when it when it comes to accepting what we actually want yeah and so, um but I personally have found it helpful to know that it's a psychological thing that everyone has to deal with yes not just me <laughs> yes yeah and but it can be helpful also to to be around people who are you know, also going in the direction that you want to go in or who have, have gone some way or who understand that that's that struggle in ourselves of I'm really scared, but I want to do it. But every single step I'm taking is is pushing me way outside of my comfort zone and I'm just going to go at it the pace I need to, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're nearly at the end, but our, our theme at at Media Cat this month is um, it's a good one actually is is stand and fight, and it's about exploring that that exact line between cutting our losses and fighting for something. And I just I wondered if there was any any thoughts and feelings that you had about that from from your specific experience and your clients' experiences on on there being specific things that you know you found we often need to let go of. We've discussed some of them. But, you know, in the context of, of that theme, is there anything else that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so many, there are so many things that we can choose to fight for right now. And we've we've touched on some of them, right? Access needs, um, the, the, the social and gendered and racial inequities of getting diagnosis, but also just, you know, in the workplace in general. And I think that's obviously... A really important fight. I think what a lot of the people I work with um, start with is this really heightened sense of justice where they've been looking for what are the rules that mean I'm acceptable and what is right and I need to be that and how come I'm being asked to be all of these things and yet there's, there's all these people that, that say they're here to serve me or that they're here to protect me or and they're not doing what they're doing and so we can come into this sense of, of feeling really at war with the whole world, uh, feeling this sense of injustice. And I think also when we come to, um, you know, if you've gone for a lot of your life not knowing that you're neurodivergent and then you suddenly realise you also have to process um, and work through all of the internalised ableism that that you're, we're indoctrinated into, which can look like um, an over-identification with everyone who... Uh, uh, shares our, our assigned identities or, or labels or chosen identities and so a lot of where I'm actually bringing people to is choosing your battles and there is somewhere in the world where your strengths meet a need that is uniquely yours that is the fight that you can fight and that's the one to focus on and when you start doing that there's an incredibly 
liberating sense of trust that there is someone else who is doing their bit. I'm this is my piece of the world that I'm solving, and, and there are other people that are also working on their part. Um, and you know, being open to all of the unlearning and and the the understanding of the identities that we don't hold. Um, and then I think another another thing is is letting go of the idea that we need to be accepted before we can start being who we are, which is a very difficult one because on a structural level, on an access needs level, in a workplace, yes, it's acceptance, it's safety. But on an interpersonal level, we're often looking for the self-esteem that is missing in other people's reactions to us, in social esteem, in the in in what we're afforded from other people and how they see us, or how we have been accustomed to thinking that people see us. Often we collect up um, ideas of who we are, and these become these stories. This is who I am. This is how people see me. And but those are really um, stories that we've kept telling ourselves that we've identified with. So anytime that you're thinking this is who I am and you have an image or you have an idea of, of yourself, it's really just a, an illusion. It's a, a collection of thoughts and ideas. And so having a different relationship with how you think about yourself and how you honor your own needs, how you look after um, you know, your own energy and time is where you start to build up self-esteem. And then it's about finding people who can affirm those choices. And that is then how you grow and start to create and be a, a, a leader, an example of modeling the social esteem that you've needed. So you become the teacher through how you are being towards yourself. And I think actually that's the most powerful way to influence and to stand and fight is... There are things I want to do. There's a person that I am here here to be, and I'm going to honor that and stand for that. And it's amazing what happens when people start to do that is some of those barriers that they've been fighting with, some of the ways that they haven't felt seen, just start to melt because people are like, oh, okay, you're just being who you are and you're safe in that and you're and and so suddenly I feel safe that I'm maybe not perfect or that I can be who I am and and there's a, a ripple effect so it's yeah it's it's the mixture of both when we do that inner work is when we become the people that can start to influence and make change fuck <laughs> I, I the first interview tonight make me cry <laughs> <laughs> oh, felt that, felt that deeply. Oh my goodness! Wow. Um, so I'll just shout out a few of my clients. There's a um, one of them, Gem, whose uh, experience of school was really like a difficult one. Who experiences this idea that you need to be right, that there's a skill that you need to have, that there are think ways of doing things, and they're creating this new. Um, uh, you know, philosophy around giving workshops as they're teaching soca skills, but they're doing it in a way that is, it's about, um, and they would explain this so much better than me, but creating a space where it's not about getting it right 
And it's mm. not about building a skill, but it's there's something else that starts to become possible. Wow. Um, I have another client who's creating a neuroqueering network, um, and they've really gone from someone who really felt cut off from society and separate to really bit standing up and, and, and leading and starting to create cultural spaces and networks. And so, yeah, it's it's why I'll never stop doing this because of what I'm starting to see happen and 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 who people become when they've had the experience of, yep, I'm another human seeing you and, you know, they feel seen and they feel understood and acknowledged and then supported and that it, it's like it's shifting an entire shifting the it's like a quantum leap right it's like a, a shifting the entire paradigm of everything that's happening around them in a very subtle slow uh, but but deep way yeah well i have no more words other than well uh <laughs> we we will also link in the show notes to to some of the some of the work that that is being done by your clients because that sounds oh yes that'd be amazing um, thank you and so before before we leave, I wanted to speak to all the the leaders and the employers out there, because obviously you have this in you know depth of of, of knowledge and understanding from a from a personal and a professional point of view. If and it's a gross oversimplification that I'm asking this question. Oh, I am I am aware of that. But you know, is there is there anything that that you feel are kind of most powerful, kind of fundamental behaviour changes, or or things that employers or leaders can really do to help specifically the neurodivergent, but in 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 general, all of their team kind of nourish that that culture and that creativity, and and help them be help people be themselves in 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 not as good way as you because obviously everyone should come to you but you know that little steps that they can take that might have have major impacts on on how happy and fulfilled and 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 well their their employees and and teams are doing yeah i mean i think first of all to acknowledge that it's a really difficult thing to um support and cater for because you know we are in companies, we're in businesses and we're all trying to, you know, there's an element of needing to make it work so that there are jobs and that there are deadlines sometimes and there are things that are necessary. And I think the most important thing is also understanding neurodivergence encompasses this enormous range of very different lived experiences, even within the distinct categories themselves. Uh, there is no one way of being, and I think that can be really, uh, you know, bewildering and, and confusing to someone who maybe doesn't identify in that way. And so, maybe the most important thing is is knowing that there isn't a catch a catch-all solution. That some access needs are incompatible, and that yeah, what we've talked about really is that the culture of safety comes from a culture of of people knowing that they can ask for things to be different. And that that be an explicitly welcomed thing and understood that this isn't an inconvenience or an add-on, but it, it can be really infused in everything that, that the company does um, so that it means that there might be one person who who needs less visual distraction and another person who likes to verbally 
process, uh, someone who doesn't work well with fluorescent lighting, someone who needs a flexible time schedule, someone who's struggling with mental health, um, someone who needs boundaries around when and how people interact with them or distract them, different ways of Zoom call facilitation. Like it's an endless list, right? So the best person to decide what what is needed is the individual. And, and I think uh, creating a culture of access comes from the top down and from those in leadership uh, really understanding um, what can be done to ensure that there are very explicit channels of communication where those things can be asked for um, and maybe having a budget for it. Who knew? <laughs> Shocker. Yes. <laughs> Shocker though, might want to be included. But I mean, I I, I absolutely feel that and I had a, had a sneaky suspicion that, that that's what you were you were thinking so thank you for validating my my similar opinion yeah. is fundamentally people need to be able to ask for what they want but i think one of the things that a lot of people neurotypical or otherwise sometimes misunderstand is how key that psychological safety is in enabling that to happen you can't just ask for what you need half the time we don't even know what we need as we've already discussed <laughs> yes Yes. <laughs> I wish it was that simple. Really, I yeah, but it's not. It's yeah. humanity. Yes. And I think also like there there's policy, right? There's there's these ideas that it's, you know, we're supposedly protected by the law to request reasonable adjustments and I think it's it's like 10% of what needs to happen. I think reasonable is is a is a tricky language to work with. Adjustments is a tricky word as well. And we, you know, it's not reasonable. It's not really about reasonable adjustments. It's about an entire culture shift and recognizing that that leads to more creative, more productive. You know, if, if we are looking at producing in, under capitalism, there, there are benefits, but that's, that's not why we want to do it. Yes. And so before I launch into yet another tangent, I'm, I'm going to go with my <laughs> which brings it back directly to the purpose of the pod for me, which I've also now realised is just me creating safe spaces where I've been able to validate myself yeah, to other people. Um, <laughs> well, there we go. Um, how how do you think that, that utilising those strategic thinking skills, utilising those inherent parts of, of personality can can actually enrich creative work and are there any kind of actionable steps that you encourage people to take to do that yeah so i think um there's a there's a, a big part of how when you have a structure you feel actually contained and safe to play and um sometimes a lot of the, of the, the stress that we're experiencing is actually from a lack of planning a lack of structure and a, and then a lack of containment um i remember years ago reading an interview with Bjork and she said she was I, this is a complete paraphrasing because I can't remember where or exact, exactly what the words are but she said that she's 50% business or strategic thinking and 50% creative and that was a big light bulb moment for me of like oh yeah no that that side is is so key and um and I think you know especially when you're doing something with creativity, what you're doing is creating something that didn't exist. And so a plan, a structure, 
helps you start to believe that it's possible. So something that I do with my clients is I start getting them to think, this is after we've done a lot of work this, and, and they're starting to recognize, oh no, there's this bigger thing that I want to do in the world, is to work in three different time frames. One is three-year goals and three-month goals and then next steps. And I think three-year goals, it feels far enough off that there's a lot of spaciousness. It feels like there's a lot that's possible. And then three-month goals, it brings it right down into, okay, tangibly what's possible? What can I actually get done in the next three months, which feels like a lot less? Um, And then what is our next step? And I think so much of what neurodivergent people experience is, is the the given paths didn't work and they're looking for how. And so what I bring them to is we don't need to know how, we just need to know what and why and let the why fuel the fact that we're going to have to try a bunch of different stuff. And so often we we think of all of the steps, we have this big vision, we're like, oh, I can see all of the pieces and we start going into the how, we start imagining all of those pieces and we get completely overwhelmed and we haven't even started and we've, we've stopped, right? Sounds so, yes, so resisting, imagining all of the steps, staying staying with the vision, understanding and really rooting in the energy of why. Why does this need to exist in the world? Why am I doing this? Why do I care about this? Why is this important to me, to the people I'm working with? Um, and then that naturally opens up and shows you okay what's the next thing I need to do towards that and those next steps is what increases the belief rather than attaching your belief to oh this way will work or if I follow this path or this example yeah fascinating not least because so much of that language crosses over with how we in the industry literally describe strategy how we literally do it no makes complete sense because we're trying to tap into human behavior and insight and and so of course it's completely applicable to us as individuals but also to the work we do yeah yeah head blown emoji again i i (laughs) have already run over and i could go for ages but i want to leave everyone wanting more of you so thank you louisa for coming on on the podcast this has been quite literally mind-blowing uh, I really really personally and professionally um, appreciate and, and and respect and love what you do so thank you so much for joining me well thank you so much for having me and thank you for creating such a, a welcoming and safe space to have all of this discussion and also you know what you're doing with the podcast in general I think it's really helping people feel seen and understanding that there are examples and representation and um, struggles that we all go through that that it's not just it's not we're not alone in those so yeah thank you so much for inviting me